You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Beloved, this is the holy word of God. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning. And we come again to chapter 22. Another pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time in Matthew's gospel. And after his now famous cleansing of the temple, Jesus has taken aim at the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem, and he's been accusing them of being derelict of their duties. Through a series of parables, he's been accusing them of neglecting the true teaching of the law and totally missing the arrival of the Messiah King. And so after three sharp rebukes from Jesus, again, in the form of parables, the Pharisees are at their wits end with Christ. They are at, they've had it up to here with him. They've already concluded in their hearts that he must be destroyed, that he's a blasphemer, but everything they throw at him seems to backfire onto them. And so here in our text this morning, the the Pharisees twist together another rhetorical Molotov cocktail and they hurl it at Jesus in hopes that this will finally stir the crowds against him. After all, what's more explosive than the topics of politics, religion, and money? That's exactly what we have in this very simple yet maniacal and cunning question from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Is it lawful, Jesus? Is it faithful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Especially in the context of first century Israel who was at that very moment being colonized and oppressed by Rome and being forced to pay taxes to a pagan Roman emperor, this question is layered with traps and entanglements throughout. 
Now listen, this particular section in Matthew 22 does not clear up all of the complexities of how the Christian ought to relate to civil government. However, my hope is that we'll see Christ's response, what we'll see in his response is a principle that will act as a guiding light for all of us who are trying to follow after Christ as sojourners and exiles on our way to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So there are three points in this text. Uh, First, there's an unlikely alliance, that's point one. Second, there's a cunning trap, that's point two. And finally, the brilliance of Christ. There is a brilliant response uh, from Christ. First, there's an unlikely alliance. Look at verse 15 again with me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, before we get to that very obvious flattery, First, notice with me this very unlikely delegation. The very unlikely delegation between the Pharisees and the Herodians. These two parties couldn't be further apart ideologically. The Herodians, as their name suggests, were descendants and followers of King Herod and Antipas. And the Herodians were, in fact, the very liberal group in first century Palestine. They were Jews by blood, but they liked the Roman occupation. The Roman occupation brought them a lot of benefit. As the tax monies flowed to Rome, Rome would flow that back to the Herodians to keep the peace so Israel could have their king. The the Herodians are are like the, the big government liberals in first century Israel. But what makes this a really unlikely ally, the Pharisees on the complete other side were a highly charged conservative wing of Judaism who were diametrically opposed to Rome's occupation in Israel. And they certainly opposed the taxes that they placed on Israel. The Pharisees, you could say, were the small government revolutionary conservatives, if you will. However, despite their radical differences, these two parties find a common enemy in Jesus. And the question for us is why? Why do these two otherwise diametrically opposed political, religious parties find a common enemy in Jesus? And the answer is, as we'll soon discover, is that Jesus doesn't fit either ideological category. He doesn't fit the Herodians and he doesn't fit the Pharisees. And therefore he is a liability and a threat to both of their pursuits of power. This has been the way, beloved, this has been, this is the way it's been throughout human history and it's true today. If you walk with Jesus long enough, you will see him utterly frustrating all human ideology including both today, our political left and our political right. 
the left, the political left, loves to emphasize or loves Jesus' emphasis on social justice and the poor. But they're frustrated by his emphasis on repentance and obedience. The political right, however, embraces Jesus' teaching on morality, repentance, and personal responsibility. But Jesus' emphasis on social justice and his very serious warnings about wealth make the conservatives nervous. My point is, if you walk with Jesus long enough, you will see him upsetting all human ideology, whether it be on the political right or the political left. And again, the question is why? Because, listen, Jesus refuses to be a partisan ploy for the advancement of somebody else's power. He is a king. No, no, he is the king. He is the king and he transcends all of our human categories for governance. And he is always telling his followers, isn't he? Yes, engage in culture. Do your best to be salt and light in this dark world, but put your hope in me. Not a political party, not a human ideology. Jesus is not a partisan and neither should we. And so these two political enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who otherwise would not be sharing a cup of coffee together, find themselves on the temple grounds, partnering up to trap Jesus in his words. And notice again this sort of obvious camouflage, the attempt to camouflage their trap with this flattery. Look again at verse 16. Teacher, we know. This is my emphasis adding this. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. What perfect irony in this text. It's perfect irony. Everything they are saying albeit with insincere flattery, is 100% true. Jesus is not swayed by appearances, and he doesn't show partiality. And so the irony is, they are trying to sway Jesus by telling him that nothing sways him. But to their surprise, their flattering words are unable to sway him. Jesus cuts straight all the time which makes his words, isn't it true when you do your devotions, isn't it true when you read Jesus' words, aren't they so refreshing? They aren't wrapped in agenda. He just cuts straight. He's gentle but clear. There's no one like him. And the irony is Jesus is going to cut straight with them. He isn't going to let their flattery dissuade him from the truth he is about to speak to them. And so they're not doing their best job at camouflaging the trap. However, what comes next out of their mouths, the question, would have sent a sobering hush throughout the whole temple grounds. What the question they're going to ask is a big one. And so an unlikely alliance sets up a very cunning trap. This is point two, a very cunning trap. Look at verse 17. Tell us then... What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar 
or not? Okay, on its surface, it's a very simple question about paying taxes. It doesn't seem very weighty. It doesn't seem like there's a lot going on behind uh, the question. But the reality is this question carried with it huge historical, political, and theological implications. Like I said, this is a Molotov cocktail just twisted together, hurled at Jesus. And it has historical, political, and theological implications. Let me briefly go through those three implications so that we can feel the weight of this question in the text. First, the historical implications behind the question. In 6 AD, the Roman emperor Quirinius levied a census in Israel that was called the poll tax on every Jew living in Judea. The poll tax was levied in 6 AD. But the poll tax was different from every other taxation that Rome put on Israel. Rome would tax uh, consumer goods, would tax travel, whatever. It would tax all kinds of things, consumption, property, training. But the poll tax was different. The poll tax did not tax consumption, it taxed people. In other words, you were taxed simply because you were alive and you had the privilege of living in the Roman Empire. So for obvious reasons, historically, the Jews despised the tax. Every time they had to pay it, they were reminded of their oppressors. Okay, tax my bread, tax my milk, tax my cattle, tax my trade, but tax me just for being me? How dare you, Rome? And so they hated, historically, they hated the poll tax. And we all hate all kinds of taxes, so we can, re- we can resonate. But shortly, listen, after the consensus was levied in, in 6 AD, the Jewish people revolted. And this revolt was led by a, name, by a guy named Judas, the Galilean, different from Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. But Judas the Galilean led an insurrection to try and fight back against this poll tax. This is sort of the Boston Tea Party moment uh, for first century uh, Jews. This is taxation without representation. And so he, le- he leads a result, but a revolt against Rome, but Rome squashes him like a bug. And the revolt is silenced. However, this historical revolt gave rise to a political movement in Israel. So from the historical context on this, do we pay this poll tax? Because that's what, that's what the question is. Now to the political implications. Now there's a political movement in Israel. Those who sympathize with Judas the Galilean now refer to themselves as the zealots. These are the zealots. And they kept his revolutionary ambition alive, but they kept it quiet. We're going to do this again, but we're going to be smarter this time. We're going to move into the shadows. We have to be smarter. We're not stronger than Rome, but we have to be smarter than Rome. And so they begin this political movement in first century Israel. In fact, they were in part successful. The revolt of AD 66 actually led to the destruction of Israel and the temple in AD 70. That was the final smashing of Rome when Rome dismantled the temple in Jerusalem. But needless to say, there is historical and now there is this political movement against Rome that is behind this question about taxes. 
But perhaps the biggest issue they had with this particular tax was the theological implications. The poll tax, listen, was a tax that went straight into the pocket of the divine emperor himself. This tax didn't get spread throughout the kingdom. The poll tax went directly in the Roman emperor's pocket. And this is a power play, right? These are my subjects now. I get to take all of the poll tax. But it's the divine emperor. That piece is what got under the skin of those Jews who are now forced to pay the poll tax. In fact, the denarius was, the, was, was minted with the image of Caesar on it. It was Tiberius Caesar at this point with the inscription on the denarius, quote, Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. The son of the divine. So not only was this a graven image which assaults the conscience of a first century Jew, we are not to handle graven images, we are not to make graven images. Not only did it have a graven image, but it also was to be paid to a false god, a pagan ruler. And so then the question posed to Jesus is not really about taxes. This question is about historical, political, and ultimately theological allegiances. Who are you with Jesus? Are you with the zealots? Or are you with the oppressors? The trap is a deadly one. It's layered. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay the poll tax, he signs with the Roman oppressors and betrays the zealots at the middle, in the middle of Passover. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he will be labeled as a radical zealot and Rome will snuff him out like Judas of Galilee. So which is it? What does Jesus do? What, what, what's, what's the answer? Are you with the evil oppressors colonizing our country or are you with the revolutionaries? So an unlikely team sets a very cunning trap for Jesus, and this leads us to our final point. How does Jesus respond? And here, again, we have the brilliance of Christ. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. You have to look closely, but there is a subtle yet brilliant detail in verse 19. Remember, one of the reasons that so many of the Pharisees hated and even refused to pay the poll tax was because they refused to handle coinage that had somebody's engraved image on it. They refused even to handle engraved, uh, engraved, graven images. And a denarius, as we discussed, had the image of Tiberius Caesar on the coin. And so, not only does Jesus not have a denarius, which I think is wonderful, he doesn't even have one. He has to ask for one. But notice who he asks for a denarius. It's the Pharisees who hand over the coin that they had apparently despised. What does this mean? 
It means, according to Christ, they are hypocrites. The word hypocrites in the Greek literally means you're a mask wearer. You're a stage actor. This was all staged. You you hypocrites, they are willing, you are willing, Jesus is saying, to, to use the coin, the denarius, you had one. You're willing to use it so as long as you can purchase things for your personal good, but now that you're, supposed, you're so religious that you're opposed to the tax because you're not able to handle the graven image, so you're not going to handle the graven image to pay the tax, but you'll handle the graven image to buy things. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. This is hypocrisy at its finest, and Jesus calls it out. But then, and here's the main point, Jesus gives now a response to their question that has reverberated and shaped civic society for 2,000 years. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he doesn't stop there and to God the things that are God's. Listen carefully. In one sentence, Jesus establishes the principle that submission to civil authority, even pagan civil authority, doesn't conflict with ultimate allegiance to God. In one sentence, Jesus establishes the principle that submission, pay the tax, to civil authority does not conflict with ultimate allegiance to God. Paul the Apostle would pick up this principle in his famous work to the Romans in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Jesus holds up the denarius. He holds it up and he asks, whose likeness is this? Now, Jesus could have used a number, two or three different words for likeness, but he chose one particular word, and that's the word icon. Whose icon is this? And the reason he uses the, the, the Greek word icon is because it's the same word in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 126, same word. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image. Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in our icon. Let us make man in our icon after our likeness. And so again, Jesus says, whose icon is this? Whose likeness is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render. Again, Jesus is very careful with his words. He could have said another word, forgive. He doesn't say give. He says render. Render means to give back, to pay something back, to to give it back. So Jesus is saying, if Caesar made the coins and he wants them back, 
then give them back. They're his. They're his icon. However, if it's true that God made all of you and me in his icon, is in his image and likeness, then the same is true according to Christ that you are to give back to God the things that are God's, which is what? Your ultimate allegiance. Who is Caesar? Oh, he's got a picture on a coin? That's cute. Give it back to him if he wants it. But you are made in the image of God. So give to God what is his. Another writes, quote, we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we are never to give to Caesar what is God's. So yes, submit to civil authority. Yes, pay your taxes, all of them. Yes, vote in this election. But never forget to whom you belong. This is the key takeaway from this text. Never forget, as you are salt and light and you're engaged and you want to see certain outcomes in culture, which we love, we want to be salt and light. When you engage, never forget to whom you belong. That's what Jesus is saying. Whose image are you? Don't get caught up, beloved. I'm speaking to myself too. In partisan skirmishes in person or online. These things come and go. They come and go. Candidates rise and fall. But God, the one who formed you and knows you, is calling you to something deeper something more profound, more hopeful. He's calling you and I to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're studying 1 Peter uh, in our men's group and we, we just read through the whole epistle on Friday and Peter begins his epistle by saying, I am writing to elect exiles. What a description for Christians in the world. Yes, I am a citizen of these United States and I am grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be born here. I could have been born anywhere else, same as you. But we're here and we should be grateful. And our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate home is not here. It's not here. And therefore, what are the hills that we die on? What are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we, we have to stay focused? Jesus is not a partisan. Every human ideology, since he came, died, and resurrected, has tried to use him as a, as a campaigner. <laughs> they tried to use Jesus to campaign. Jesus doesn't campaign for anyone but himself. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. So you and I, beloved, were made in the image and likeness of God. We rightfully belong to him. And here, we are to render to God. He wants us back. So if Caesar wants the coin back, give it back to him. Give it back to him. God wants you back. 
He made you and he wants you back. But here's the problem. The problem is that through sin and rebellion, we have marred the image of God in us. And therefore, we need, before we can go back to God, we need to be redeemed and remade. God wants us back, but there is a problem. We're marred. Our image, the sin has run. It's coursed its way through the image that is in us. And the redemptive irony in this whole scene is that the one who has come to redeem our marred image is the one who allows his perfect image to be marred on our behalf. In the most stunning act of human history, the maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the divine image of God, gives himself over to Caesar to be marred and crucified. He gives to Caesar what was God's, though he did nothing wrong, so that we could give God what belongs to him. Don't you see? Don't you see the image of God standing there, mangled by Rome, about to be mangled by Rome, the image marred by Rome, punished by God? Why? Because God wants you back. He wants you back. He wants you back. He wants all of you, all of you. He made all of you, your emotions, your mind, your body. He wants it all back. And that's why, that's why, I should be done. That's why there is a resurrection. Don't you see? Jesus didn't just die spiritually. The resurrection is not just spring is coming because there was winter. No, no, no. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Why? Because God wants all of you back. Mind, body, and soul. And as he rose, so will we. As the first icon, the true icon rose, we will rise and we will then be redeemed image bearers of God. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the sermon. That's it. Verse 22 is the final verse. When they heard it, Pharisees, the Herodians, when they heard his response, they marveled. And then they walked away. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. How tragic. What about you this morning? You're hearing him again. If I've, if I've even done slightly my job, you're marveling at his brilliance. What about you? Will you marvel and walk away? Or will you marvel with joy and tears in your face? Will you bend your knee and worship him and marvel at his divine mercy toward you? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we not only want to marvel at your brilliance, but we want to bend the knee and follow. It is hard.
It is hard to follow you, Jesus. You said it would be. It is hard. It's getting harder. Sometimes I long for the days that were just easy to follow you. This is a hard time. But you're worth it, Lord. You're worth it. You're melting our hearts with the gospel again. You're redeeming us back to you. Keep us all the way as we've already sung. Hold us fast. Tether us, Lord, through the emotions and the fears that just come, some by our own doing and some by just the flesh and the devil. We are weak and needy, but you take thought for us. So tether us to those truths and help us to give to God the things that are God's, which is all of us, we pray in Christ's good name. Amen.